Welcome to this week's episode of the Murphy Corp podcast. Rachel sat down with Ross Fullerton this week and Ross is from the London Ambulance Service and they are doing some really, really good things. And you'll find that out as you listen through the episode. Enjoy. Okay, bro. So, Ross, talk to us a little bit about what uh, business change means to you. Uh, so, I think it means different things depending on where you are and what you're trying to achieve. And I think that's maybe at the heart of it. It's about helping an organisation or an individual uh, have a complete new outlook on how they do something in order to achieve different business goals so it might be around growth it might be around efficiency it might be around a new business that they're trying to open up in a new market um, all of those things require you to to look at what you're doing in a different way and one of the things that's hardest for all of us is to change what we do because we are creatures of habit so yeah. business change is fundamentally around breaking those habits that we might be aware of or might not be aware of so we can achieve something different from, from what it is we're doing so um, yeah, it's a really broad but interesting topic for me. Hi, uh, yeah, I agree. And having spent uh, having spent a number of years in this space, I think for for me, um, you know, understanding the similarities on business change, whatever industry you're in, mm. is is kind of part of the uh, part of the motivation. Yeah, and I think I've been lucky to work across a range of different industries. So whilst I started out a career in IT. Having then spent 10 years as a management consultant, you get to do opportunities in, uh, in retail, in banking, in central government, in local government, um, uh, lots of time in the energy sector. And whilst they had completely different context, the challenge of delivering business change had some real common themes throughout it. People need to understand why it is that they need to change. Yeah. If you don't have that core understanding, it doesn't matter which bit of the, the world or which sector you're in. It's going to fail. So those basics, I think, carry on regardless. But then you've got to tune it so it's, it's relevant. You've got to make it appropriate in the in the environment for the people where they are operating today, so they can think about where they're going to be tomorrow. And can you talk to us a little bit about um, where you've achieved business change? Yeah. So I think some of the um, greatest examples of business change have been, uh, for example, some of the work I've done with BP, which was a few years ago now. Um, but it was a point in time where they were uh, really trying to come together globally across a bunch of different brands which existed in different countries and had um, corporate support services in all those different countries that had grown up locally through mergers and acquisition um, and still had a really strong local brand presence. And that was important to them. The Arrow brand in Germany was a strong brand in Germany and BP rightly didn't want to break that. But they also had a whole set of changes they wanted to make uh, across their operating model because there were efficiencies to generate, they wanted to spend their money on more value-add things. So pulling those different ways of working locally, but it made sense into a common operating model, was a huge challenge for them um, and, a, and a program that I was uh, really lucky to be part of actually because it was a, one of the rare programs which is genuinely global and you know, BP having a footprint in over 100 countries. Um, Ways in which, well, and we weren't successful in everything we tried to do, so I'll say that as well. I'll talk no, about that no, in a minute. Nobody ever is. Too, but um, ways in which we were successful 
really did come down to where we'd managed to understand what it meant for people in their local context. Yeah. Um, a, a kind of single slide deck that you take around the world is never going to cut it, frankly, because the, they were such different organisations in country, uh, they had different functional structures and they had different local cultures, policies, um, attitudes to change based on a whole set of different things. So what really made that work for us was having the time with local leads to understand what it was going to mean for the organisation and country, for the teams and for the individuals as far as we can, and then working through that is, uh, in, in quite a lot of detail actually. Um, the outcome in kind of headline financial terms was several hundred million pound savings. So that was a genuinely realised financial saving off the back of transformation, which a lot of these things start with big promise and don't deliver. Yeah. This one absolutely did hit the financial piece. Um, and partly that was through persistence and focus on the benefits and the outcomes throughout and understanding that this was uh, an area that the business needed to do because its competitors were already several steps down that path and if, if BP didn't get there then it was going to become less and less relevant in the marketplace and uh, what actually re resonated for a lot of staff is their personal pensions were based on this company share price. That, that, that element really, of tie-in. Yeah, yeah, there was a real personal win for an awful lot of people there that they thought, oh, well, why do I need to care about the money? Well, actually, this is what you're going to retire on and for some people that was quite near, for some it was a bit further away, so it was a less compelling argument. That's a really interesting way of incentivising the, uh, the people who are involved. And what you've described there, Ross, is a, a broader business change than, than most because you'll be looking at an operating model, you know, a global operating model. That's a, that's a mammoth piece of work. Uh, it is. Well, it certainly makes doing things like conference calls with teams in Pakistan when you're still in bed uh, an entertaining <laughs> challenge. There's only so many of these things that you can do and still be uh, up and about as well. Uh, but that's also sort of what makes it so rewarding is when when we did travel and we did go and see the local teams, they were so welcoming. Yeah. And that relationship that we built with all of those teams was crucial to this, so that they didn't feel it was done to by the team from London. They, it was worth us investing the time in building those personal relationships, understanding the, the pride the team in Dubai took to come and show us life in Dubai, how they enjoyed their life. Uh, some people could have considered it was a waste of our time to go and frankly, what could have been perceived as sightseeing in Dubai on company money. But what that did was build a really strong relationship between Absolutely. the teams. That when the going got tough, and it did get tough, they, we trusted each other. We had yeah. confidence in knowing each other, which allowed us to see through the harder parts of the process and come out the other side constructively. And, you know, years later, still be in contact with each other because you've built that bond. So it's a really difficult thing to sell is the importance of those relationships to making change really happen. But we are, as individuals, and I think there's a lot of research that underpins this, much more likely to change if the sources of change are sources that we trust. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's a common theme that, that I've been hearing in, in doing this series around business change. Um, you know, it's, it's people that sit at the heart of it, uh, and it is trust, it's yeah. building those relationships, because frankly, you know, why would anybody want to change what they're doing uh, without some, you know, personal incentives? Um, and what about some of the challenges on that, uh, that change programme, Ross? I'm, I'm sure there was a, you know, a couple. Yeah, I mean, so it's really difficult when you've got an organisation as broad to be as well engaged with all the stakeholders as you need to be. Because uh, we had a finite amount of resource, and it's the same challenge I think on any change programme, 
is that the team never has enough capacity to engage yeah. with all the stakeholders to the level of which we really should do. Um, and uh, there were parts of the, of the organisation that were much more resistant to change than others and uh, if they were extremely profitable parts of the business, and there were a few that were, they could turn around to us and say, go away, look, we're making loads of cash, go and talk to all the ones that are, that are not. That are not, yeah. Um, so that, um, you could maybe use that in terms of the sequence in which you went about things, but you still had to get to them eventually and buy them in. Uh, and in some cases, the change might have been perceived as uh, a worsening of a situation locally. So some of the teams in Norway had some really good ways of doing things um, that locally made perfect sense, but globally didn't. So there was a tough decision for the organisation to make, because do we, do we break what's locally good for the common global good, or do we break the global operating model vision in order to let local delivery flourish? Um, and I don't think we always got that right. I think sometimes that was as much politically led with a small p, so again, maybe other relationships that play around some of the governance that I was more facilitating rather than part of. Um, or sometimes miscommunications could have led to maybe we didn't quite get the decisions right through making some of the changes and go about them in the right way. So um, that then means you've got some, some teams who they don't adopt the changes quickly, they don't realise the benefits and then there's an awful lot more time and effort to be spent and then yeah, they just think of this as being, oh hang on, do I have to spend more time on this change? Um, so you've got to really carefully manage that balance and uh, make sure that the change team are all capable of managing the relationships at different levels to really identify when's it going well and how do we build on that and when's it not going so well what are the early warning signals how do we spot them action them and know if it's made a difference to bring things back and the complexity of a you know a full new operating model i'm guessing was kind of governance capability so people processes you know kpis the, the whole shooting match it was and across there are supply chains as well so you will not well, have had um various suppliers as part of that delivery model in country or out of country delivering to in country um which will have had contractual underpinnings so um the change barriers weren't just people in goodwill and and motivation and kpis they were commercially constrained or procurement constrained as well so um, uh, I think we we built a really good way of articulating quite visually um, progress on a country and vertical basis and had that uh, A, up on the walls and B, made away, available digitally but it built a little bit of competition across the teams to say well hang on a minute we've not got our processes landed or we've got our people change done but we've not done this other piece um, just for some simple traffic light monitoring of where things were at that allowed us to you know, explain at a glance where we'd got to yeah. and uh, in one hand it massively oversimplified the challenge but on the other hand it allowed us to start a conversation with people and really engage on progress with the uh, European Regional Director for Refineries who frankly had an awful lot to do, didn't have a lot of time if he could look and see this is my status, that's the area I want to dive into then you could start the conversation you really wanted to have um, uh, and it's it's not an area that I think I've necessarily got as right in other programmes since then because it takes the right you almost need the right context to do that and in, in being a global organisation it was quite easy to use things like maps 
Right, yeah. Um, yeah, and it is. I mean, I'm quite visual, so for me, I buy into that, whether it is the, um, you know, it's the rag rating or it's, you know, a, something I've seen a lot of recently is the kind of rich picture. So you're, you're building up a visual of, um, you know, what the operating model is, where you're going, what the vision is. That, for me, because I think like that, that really resonates. Um, yeah. But I know, well, you know, lots of people work different ways. Yeah. But but I guess it's about trying to get a blend, isn't it, of, yeah. of tools and techniques. And and actually consciously kind of thinking about, I'm not just going to communicate this one way. I'm going to generate these five different ways of articulating the same message. And for some people, that will be irritating repetition. But for others, it will only be message four that the penny drops. Yep. Um, and understanding how to best do that. Because if you're annoying the person who got it in version one with another version two, three, four, and five, they're gonna disengage from you. So it's how you make it um, something that appeals to people to engage in, but doesn't turn them off because you're saying the same thing too many ways. And I, I think that's an art that uh, the right business change leads can absolutely help land with stakeholders. And the wrong ones are probably at the root of some failed business change. Uh, yeah, I would uh, I would absolutely agree with that. And, and what about um, what about lasting legacy? And and what I mean by that is you know after you've left the organisation or the program has finished, um, how do you, um, h- how do you look back and make sure that has been you know sticky for want of a less professional phrase? Um, make make sure that people haven't just gone back and done what they fancied doing and not adopted the change? Uh, Sticky is an interesting word because the consultancy that I worked for had the, the last phase of their model was making it stick. Okay. So I completely... Are you trying to say I sound like a consultant, think, Ross? Uh, <laughs> well, I think, I think it's the right word, isn't it? Because yeah. you do what change needs to stick or it else does. it's a waste of time. Um, I, I've not left the organisation, but I think it's a really interesting example from the ambulance sector. So. About uh, 18 months ago, the national response targets changed for ambulance trusts nationally, which completely overhauled the entire way we, we operate, um, moving away from seeing <coughs> the majority of our patients in about seven minutes to a much more nuanced system based on patient outcomes. Um, that required us to plan our staffing differently, manage our fleet differently, uh, our control rooms had to operate differently, and when we were on scene, we needed to do different things with patients from how we used to operate. Um, and having been part of the implementation of that programme in London, um, what's really, really interesting to see is how much it has stuck because people understand the impact of the clinical outcome on patients and they talk about things differently. We used to talk about, did we get to everyone in eight minutes? We now talk about the clinical outcome for patients. Yeah. And actually, that's much more important to our staff than whether they got there on time, uh, because they might have got there a minute earlier or a minute later, but if they'd done the wrong things on scene, then the patient may not have had the right outcome. Whereas having a set of outcomes that people were bought into has absolutely allowed us to to land that change much, much, much more effectively than we anticipated. Um, Moving away from a system that had been in place for 40 years meant it was fully entrenched in how we operate so the change was a really difficult one for, for staff initially to comprehend, particularly when you're saying we're going to take longer to get to some types of patients in order to get there more quickly to the most serious type mm. of patients. 
psychologically, that's quite a uh, that's quite a hard thing for people to get their head around. Yeah, and and by by using a number of different tools, such as the change was based on um, clinical evidence, uh, analysing over a, a million different patient incidents nationally, and that the research was publicised, peer reviewed, allowed people with a medical background to engage with that side of things and, and really understand it. Um, and then looking at things like this, the patient stories. So for some people, evidence was the thing that helped them get comfortable and embed yep. the change. For others, it was the human side. So hearing from people who we got to more quickly and probably interacted with or treated better as patients because we had a different set of KPIs and response targets around us. But hearing from a, a member of the public who had a better clinical outcome because of this new way of working is what helped another group of people operate differently. Um, and it, where that got really difficult was there were some groups of staff who are less busy now because they are sitting waiting for those most urgent calls to come. Uh, that might mean they spend a chunk of their day feeling relatively idle compared to when they used to being going from patient to patient to patient. However, when they do get calls, that means that we can be with patients in London for the most seriously ill patients where they're on average 6 minutes 28 seconds. Wow. And that is where every minute makes life and death for someone in cardiac arrest. So they know that they might be spending more time not doing what they feel is work, but when we need them, they're there and available to respond yeah. super quickly. And frankly, if you can get anywhere in London in six and a half minutes, that's amazing. And that's six minutes from when we pick up the phone, triage the caller, tell the crew where to go, they drive, they arrive on scene, six and a half minutes is really well, not I mean, very that, long at all. No, that is tankering. Um, and and well, yes, we rely on technology to help that process uh, by automating as much as we can. It fundamentally comes down to having the people available to respond when we need to do so. And uh, and that's been a big part of, of the changes, getting the bits of the organisation who can see the outcome for all sorts of different ways and continuing to reinforce that message from top-down leadership, uh, engagement with teams locally, and um, really making sure that we understand and dial out the things that we didn't quite get right first time. Because you can't change something that's been around for 40 years and pretend you're going to get it right first time. You need yeah. to build in that continual improvement cycle after you've kind of done your first cut of the change to recognise that we were tuning that old one for 40 years and we still haven't got it right. This new one's not going to be right from day one, so let's keep on dialing out the things that were imperfect. And I think that shift from kind of Big Bang. So whether it's Big Bang and you're going live with something new, you've got to keep iterating and having a look, checking the data and seeing, you know, is it working and are we getting maximum impact? And that will continue to change. Um, I mean, six and a half minutes is uh, is kind of incomprehensible to me to get anywhere in London yeah. um, in any capacity. But, um, wow. Yeah, yeah that yeah. is... Uh, and, it's, and the thing that staggers me is it's not six and a half minutes to get there. It's six and a half minutes from answering the phone. Yeah. So really, the journey time is much smaller than that, again. So, uh, so a remarkable testament to the quality of the way our organisation delivers. Um, but uh, it's only through getting business change right that we've been able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and from a personal standpoint, Ross, what makes you want to drive business change? So what makes you want to do that rather than be a business as usual type? Uh, so I, I think there's a, 
it's a really important role to have business as usual people that can run a really slick day-to-day operation that is cost-effective and does what it needs to. Um, partly, it's not what I'm very good at. Just It doesn't really naturally fit. Yeah. Um, I, um, I get bored by it. I get restless. I stop paying attention to the things I need to pay attention to. So for me, it was very quickly about learning about where my strengths lie. And my strengths are much more in the thinking about how to make change happen. Um, so that's what gives me energy. It's what uh, gets me excited and able to look back and think about the things that, wow, I've helped that transform. Um, often about seeing uh, and working in the NHS now, you're seeing things transform less about a shareholder benefit and more about public good. Yeah. Um, so I've spent most of the last seven or eight years in the public sector one way or another. Um, so there's a real benefit to society that you can see and we can all look around society and see things that should be better. The NHS isn't perfect, social care is not perfect, regardless where you look in the public sector. Like any part of the world, there's lots of things to do. So. I get a huge amount of satisfaction from seeing us get that right. Um, yeah, I can understand that, and I think that um, you're absolutely right. You know, there there are lots of people out there who who are great at running that business as usual service, but if you're motivated a different way, then you know it makes a, a whole lot more sense to go and play to your uh, play to your strengths. And what about from a personal standpoint? So, um, you know, are you are you happy to share a personal transformation with us? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's a great question. This I have to think about it a little bit. My um, my biggest personal transformation came with the birth of my daughter, who, um, for various reasons, had to spend quite a lot of time in Great Ormond Street uh, not long after she was born, and she's absolutely fine, um, and and is a thriving nearly 10 year old um, but the the key thing for me was suddenly having that focus in my life of someone else that absolutely depended on me not just for the uh, eating uh, feeding sleeping caring all the things you need to do but also to understand a, a fairly complex at the time set of healthcare conditions yeah uh, and the stress that that can introduce to to <coughs> your life and to your family and if you uh, your partner and yourself trying to deal with all of those things are difficult in any walk of life and then recognising the challenge that, that some families have that's a bit higher than that again uh, really recalibrates your view on, on quite a lot of things so that for me was absolutely transformational and it makes me reflect differently when I see others going through similar circumstances I'm much more appreciative of it because I can empathise and understand the, yeah. uh, the challenges they are going through either visually or invisibly um, and often it is invisible. Um, and I also really valued the support that I got from kind of real key members, friends and family that uh, were my trusted supporters through that time and helped me make a, uh, a difference to how my outlook in life generally is. So yeah, fascinating seeing all of that. And also then recognising how lucky we were uh, having Great Ormond Street Hospital in London that is one of the world's best hospitals. Not everyone has that on their doorstep. Yeah, of available. course. And it's an extremely levelling environment because when you go in there, you realise that there are people with some really, really difficult circumstances in life and the circumstances you have might not actually be that bad in comparison, which is a great leveller again in terms yeah. of that, that situation. So, yeah. And, um, I mean, maybe a, a, a slight follow-on question there, but do you think um, do you think that influenced your desire to go and work in the industry you're in now? Um... Or yeah, were you I working think, in that industry? No, I wasn't working in that industry then, but I was working at BP then. Um, 
so I think it definitely did, and partly it was also around um, pace of change. So one of the challenges of running a, you know, an exciting big global program is there's a twenty four seven call on you. Yep. Uh, the people in Australia want to speak to you at times of day that are different. People in Houston, Singapore, or London. Uh, and I recognised that actually my priorities weren't necessarily feeding that global machine and were more about a balance in my life. Uh, so that really sets some of my personal choices about where I want to work, where I don't want to work, uh, to do the right thing, but that's the right thing for me, for my family and for those I'm working. Well, uh, really appreciate you, uh, you sharing that, Ross, and uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.